afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People Radio Buy-in for the 99% for April 22nd, 2023. And our intro music was Leonard Cohen's iconic democracy, as it always is, because there just doesn't seem to be any better choice. So this, uh, you are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown. Full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 101.5 KFGM, no punctuation, .org, and available on podcast at anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana, or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. So... I'm Jim, the sound man, and I'm joined today by Linda Gillison and Mark Anderlich. So what do you guys have to say for yourselves? Hey, Jim. <laughs> I I deny all uh, knowledge. <laughs> all I'm oh. going to say is reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And reports of my competence have been grossly exaggerated, too. <laughs> reports are often greatly exaggerated. Yes, exactly. Especially from the powers that be, such as they are. Mm-hmm. But that's what we're here for. And we'll talk about that in the next two hours. Mm-hmm. We broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording the show from the comfort of our own homes, which are also located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and the Kootenai people, with one exception, Linda's in North Carolina. North Carolina in the Piedmont. And this is the home of, I think I'm going to say today, the Okanochi, um, oh. who were part of a, I think, a suit. Suan-speaking tribe, and um, they have been recognized by the state, but not yet by the federal government. There really aren't too many of them left because of their varied um, history. But in any case, the Okaniki are an important part of our history here. So, Now, have they always been recognized by the state and we're waiting for federal recognition, or is this a process and the state has finally got on board with the Okanichi? Oh, no. The, uh, they, uh, my sense is that they've been a state-recognized group for many years, that this is not new. But I don't know that they've applied for recognition from the feds. I don't know exactly what that requires, yeah. or how many people you have to have or anything like that. But I'm always waiting for them to be recognized as the Lumbee are in the process. Mm-hmm. So, Oh, so they're both being processed right now. Well, the Lumbee are, and oh, they're, okay. the we're not sure of. They may be too small a group, or uh, there probably are all kinds of 
requirements that have to do with those mm. those applications. Well, well, there might be Okinichi people that are in um, immigration right now trying to get across the border. <laughs> there could be. When they're countered, it, it'll all be good. There could be any number of people who are trying to get across the border. Right? <laughs> well, despite all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not quite over yet. In fact, there's been a new variant uh, that's coming to the United States and is uh, <clears throat> still uh, mutating. Um, we need to hang in there still by doing your part, by wearing masks when you are inside in public as you can, and by frequent washing of your hands. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio. And we want to give old Mick a shout out to a Mick. Hope hey, you're... Mick, I don't know why we call you old, but he, he, <laughs> he calls himself that could, old. That could right. be a litigious uh, sort of <laughs> I, it, it certainly is. Um, truth be known, every participant in this show usually qualifies as old, except for <laughs> Sandy. Yes. <laughs> She's in the prime of life. That's right. That's right. Well, good to know someone will continue. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, well, we have a good show today. And later in the show, we feature an interview of said Sandy Birch. Uh, and she's going to speak about the Montana People's Veto Petition. Very interesting project. And we play state, uh, we play Missoula State Representative Zoe Zephyr's honest comments that so disturbed the Republicans in the legislature that they have gagged her from speaking on the floor of the House. Um, and we look at some of the implications of the Pentagon document leaks and at how the wealthy are subsidized in the U.S. Um, you know, all in all, that's a whole lot more for your community radio dollar. It's true. Absolutely. It's more bang for your buck here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I look here forward to hearing all that, Mark, as well as the rest of the show. So I guess... I will plant myself behind the microphone and stick around. That's great, Jim. Um, as I've uh, been saying lately, um, like Diogenes, I will need to find an honest man to replace you. And uh, that's difficult, <laughs> especially since um, the the only lamp I could find was an old kerosene lamp, which is probably what uh, something like <laughs> Diogenes Right, right. <laughs> But this is the modern era. We need we yep. need like a high powered flashlights or something. LED. LED. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, I uh <laughs> you know, it's it's not Diogenes I fear as much as Dionysus. <laughs> yeah, you got to get a grip I'm, there, Jim. <laughs> uh, you know, I know, I know. Well, and you're and you're not broadcasting you, from a brew pub, so that's, <laughs> you know, that's a start. Yeah. Well, I typically am. I'll go back to that routine when I'm in Washington State with the Puyallup tribes and the Lummies. Yeah. Yeah. So our word of the week is taxes. How convenient since uh, <laughs> we all had to struggle with that this week or the yeah. week yeah. that's drawing to a close. Coming on the heels of U.S. income tax filing deadline, this topic never gets old. That's right. And, you know, death and taxes, right? Those are... Evergreen subjects of conversation. <laughs> yeah. I don't know which I fear most. 
At least death is easier. You don't have to be on hold to the IRS for, for a week. You don't have well, to make some phone to, calls. Yeah, and as far as as far as we know, maybe maybe that's you know maybe they've updated uh, oh heaven my. and hell. Right? They, they, that's they, right. The afterlife might be queuing in line to get all your paperwork in order. <laughs> so it's a good thing it's an eternal experience, or you wouldn't have time to get it done. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. They are both always present. Yep, you're quite right, Jim. And as regular listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, and you know who you are. Uh, <laughs> we we use the initials to protect the uh, somewhat innocent. Um, anyway, um, uh, he has suggested that we include this note about Wikipedia that each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. And as reporters Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal wrote in a June 11th, 2020 article in the Gray Zone, quote, Wikipedia has become a bulletin board for corporate and imperial interests under the watch of its Ian Randian founder, Jimmy Wales, and the veteran U.S. regime change operative who heads the Wikimedia Foundation, Catherine Mayer. End quote. Uh, despite all of that, uh, according to Wikipedia, quote, the first known system of taxation was in ancient Egypt around 3000 to 2800 BC. So you're looking, taxation is about 5000 years old. That's, that's wow. almost not quite as long as death. Death's been around longer, but that's. Gotcha. Okay. So being a tax collector is probably the second oldest profession. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, Undertaker being the first. May, or is that <laughs> the um, yeah, maybe that too. <laughs> um, it's Dionysus. It, it, all over again. Speaking yes. again, yeah. Yeah. So the earliest and most widespread forms of taxation were the corvée and the tithe. The corvée was forced labor provided to the state by peasants too poor to pay other forms of taxation. Labor, I, I didn't know this, labor in ancient Egyptian is a synonym for taxes. Huh. Oh, you got to like that. That's that, rich. I, I know, that is rich. Um, or that not. was the narrative they were pushing. Back. That was the narrative <laughs> right. they were narrative. pushing. Right. Yeah, those pharaohs, man, they, they were the first spinners, weren't they? Um, right. <laughs> Nothing um, fair about those pharaohs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, records from the time document that the pharaoh would conduct a biennial tour of the kingdom collecting tithes from the people. Other records are granary receipts on limestone flakes and papyrus. And by the way, um, uh, keeping track of tax records predated written language. <laughs> that's that's just too funny. That That's that absolutely <laughs> fact. You'd yeah. think they would have taken up enough taxes by now, wouldn't you? Right. <laughs> We're talking 5,000 years. Yeah. 5,000 years. It's, it's so a, the, so it's the a hungry maw. Human <laughs> experience is getting paid. That's, Communicating and self-expression comes later. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about right. You learn the darndest things on this show. I know, don't you? Um, early taxation is also described in the Bible. In Genesis... Chapter 47, verse 24, in the New International Version, it states, quote, But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to the Pharaoh, 
The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children, end quote. And then, you know, not to be left out in, in Hindu, Sam, Samgariter is the name mentioned for the tax collector in the Vedic texts, hmm. end quote. Wow. Go figure. Go figure. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. I prefer the wise barmaid in the Gilgamesh epic myself. <laughs> Siduri, the wise barmaid. I rather the wise barmaid. Talk about oh. her. rather than this tax collector. Uh, Siduri. That that's I think I'll name our next cat. The next wise puppy, barmaid. The next puppy or cat. My yes. favorite people. Siduri, the, the barmaid. Yeah. Uh, this, <laughs> but this may sound like an obvious question. They're the best kind. But what are taxes for? Obviously, for raising money for government programs, right? Well, um, <laughs> glad you asked, Jim. Um, <laughs> most people will assert that this is the principal purpose of taxes, and they are entirely correct for state and local governments and school districts and, and anything but the federal government. However, <laughs> the, the view that federal taxes are primarily to raise money for federal government programs is mostly incorrect. Oh, that got Jim's attention. Yeah. How is that possible, he asks. Well, Mark responds, um, <laughs> we have covered this a bit in past shows, but I want to bring up a speech given by the then chairman of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, and that's the central bank that really counts the most in the U.S., um, who explains this in relatively simple terms. Beardsley Rummel is the central banker's name, and he gave a speech before the American Bar Association in 1945 called Taxes for Revenue Are Obsolete. <laughs> oh, I am all ears. All right. Good. And well, empty pockets. And <laughs> um, Rummel starts off his speech setting the authority of the government over businesses, which today would not endear him in the least to the neoliberals uh, today. Um, he says, quote, the superior position of public government over private business is nowhere more clearly evident than in the government's power to tax business. Business gets its many rulemaking powers from public government. Public government sets the limits to the exercise of these rulemaking powers of business and protects the freedom of business operations within this area of authority. Taxation is one of the limitations placed by government on the power of business to do what it pleases. There is nothing reprehensible about this procedure. The business that is taxed is not a creature of flesh and blood. Hear that, Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. um, it, it, is not a, it is not a citizen. It has no voice in how it shall be governed, nor should it. End quote. Oh. <laughs> really? Yeah. The world where we believe that. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's, that's fine. That, uh, and, <laughs> okay, to... to Phrase it more um, gently. And that's not a common view today. <laughs> right. But he is correct in that businesses need the government to set rules so businesses can thrive. Yeah, that I'll buy. Yeah, absolutely. All day long. <laughs> right. And without government, there would be no political economy that any proper capitalist would put up with, for example. Right. 
Think about laws against fraud. If they did not exist at all, business people, because their competition would be probably engaged in fraudulent activity, ones that would even not want to commit fraud would be forced to go to the lowest common denominator by running their businesses fraudulently like everyone else. I mean, there's a lot of that going on anyway, but um, there would be no trust in any contracts nor in any business. It would be a complete shamble. I I don't always think of it in that way. Um, I'm usually more emotional about these government things than that. But it, but it does make sense, doesn't it, that without somebody to govern business, business would just be self-destructing yeah. all the right. time, right? Race yeah. to the bottom, and that would be it. Yeah, and this is what the neoliberals like, and this mm-hmm. is exactly what's happening right now. Um, mm-hmm. And that uh, you have a, I always like to pick on Boeing because Jim's here, but you, you have right. a, zon- a Oh, that's zon- okay. It's Jim worked for... <laughs> Boeing back in the Halcyon days when it was a leading company. And today he was a refugee from McBoeing Douglas. Right. Right. And yes. And and today it's a zombie corporation, which means that if you were to sell off all its assets, it could not pay its bills. Um yeah. and but also with the uh, what what was the name of the the plane the two planes that crashed what was the the, the result oh, of McDonald's seven, Douglas? Three, max, seven max eight yeah and yes. so if if they there were conveniently they stopped paying stock dividends <laughs> yeah oh too bad uh, so which you. made my taxes a lot simpler but not my life right right no. but but there's a great example of uh you know, regulators and laws not being followed by Boeing, which resulted in two catastrophic crashes Mm -hmm. and threatening to send Boeing, you know, down to the bottom of the ocean as well. So, Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, um, there's, uh, there is, uh, you know, this is a major contradiction in neoliberal capitalism, by the way, it it, it really Mm -hmm. is. Because neoliberalism says we don't want government control, but yet they need government control to not have this race to the bottom. Um, so, um, but anyway, um, it's and it's also very similar to wanting your cake and eating it too. It ain't going to happen. Uh, Rummel continues to his next crucially important point that moving the dollar off of the disastrous gold standard, in other words, making it a fiat currency, also move the government off of the money market when it wants to borrow money to pay for whatever. Here is Rummel again, quote, if we look at the financial history of recent years, and he's speaking in 1945, so he's speaking of the Great Depression, the New Deal, and World War II, um, and U.S. involvement in that. Um, If we look at the financial history of recent years, it is apparent that nations have been able to pay their bills even though their tax revenues fell short of expenses. You think about, I'm just going to aside, you think about the Great Depression and the, and how much, how much money the New Deal cost, but they weren't bringing in enough in taxes. There's mm-hmm. very few people that could afford to pay any taxes, right? It was, sure. it was a d- Great Depression. Right. Um, so, but they came up with the money to do the New Deal. They didn't have to wait around for the tax money to come in to spend it. Um 
these countries, this is Rummel again, these countries whose expenses were greater than their receipts from taxes paid their bills by borrowing the necessary money. Now, this is before the Great Depression. The borrowing of money, therefore, is an alternative which governments use to supplement the revenues from taxation in order to obtain the necessary means for the payment of their bills. A government which depends on loans and on the refunding of its loans to get the money it requires for its operations is necessarily dependent on the sources from which the money can be obtained. In the past, if a government persisted in borrowing heavily to cover its expenditures, interest rates would get higher and higher, and greater and greater inducements would have to be offered by the government to the lenders. The governments finally found that the only way they could maintain both their sovereign independence and their solvency was to tax heavily enough to meet hmm. a substantial part of their financial needs and to be prepared if placed under undue pressure to tax to meet them all, end quote. That's that's a government in a, in trouble at that point when you got to yeah. start raising huge taxes on a population. So to maintain your independence and be able to pay your bills, you're impoverishing your people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and you know, I um, in a way that shows how much Rummel is wedded to the prevailing theory nearly a hundred years ago is that 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 balance point was necessary, and it was and the um taxing cycle or you know taxing um capacity is a fixed point in time and we've learned since then that if you create a more productive more affluent society uh that that productivity can be taxed and you will get everything you need you just need hmm. the equivalent of a bridge loan he's well or does he end up uh, if, saying that? No, no, no. He he does he he would disagree with that. He would say that under the gold standard, when the currency okay. was not a fiat currency, it was based Here on we the go. gold standard. <laughs> that is exactly what happens, right? And but mm-hmm. what, you, what you say is absolutely true for state and local governments, right? Um, that uh, they have to be able to tax to meet all of their needs or get money from the feds, right? I mean, mm-hmm. It's a combination, but um, so yeah, I mean. But- Go ahead. There is a huge downside to borrowing money. I accept that. And it has to be paid back to the advantage of the lender. So lenders would have a huge political leverage over the government and so undermine democratic government. That's right. It it used to be like in the 1920s, they talked about the bankers owning the and the industrialists owning the the government right and in many mm-hmm. ways that's exa- they they did right um and it wasn't voluntary on the part of the government so much as that they it was out of necessity um mm. but here's rummel again so we'll push forward here um quote the necessity for a government to tax in order to maintain both its independence and its solvency is true for state and local governments but it is not true for a national government Two changes of the greatest consequence have occurred in the last 25 years, which when he was saying this, that starting in 1920, which was more or less the start of the Federal Reserve Bank, um, start a little earlier than that, but um, last 25 years, which have substantially altered the position of the national state with respect to the financing of its current requirements. 
The first of these changes is the gaining of vast new experience in the management of central banks. The second change is the elimination for domestic purposes in the US of the convertibility of the currency into gold, end quote. Mm-hmm. So it's getting off the gold standard partially in the 1930s um, and not, you know, uh, and and the having the central bank um, that is that has changed the entire ballgame for the government in taxes. Yeah. And it sort of mm-hmm. harkens back to the late 19th century where we, you know, where, you know, bimetallism uh, made it difficult for the country to expand and grow and be healthy. Exactly. That's so the problem with that's the problem with commodity based currency is right. It's limited by the amount of commodity you have. So gold being, you know, kind of the most obvious one. Um, right. So, so in 1945, foreign nations could convert dollars into gold, but not U.S. citizens. How interesting. I didn't right. know that. Yep. So it was, you know, trying to keep the international order in check, but for people that live here, well, the it, rules it, are binding. It was yeah. a transition. Yeah, absolutely. Gotcha. So, and then who can ever forget? Are you listening, Gold Bugs and guys on talk radio? <laughs> it was President Nixon in 1971 that took the dollar completely off the gold standard worldwide. Right. And in his action made the U.S. dollar completely a fiat currency, not based on any single commodity whatsoever. Um, and uh, so, you know, as you said before, uh, Jim, the gold supply was really the limiting factor of how big the economy could get because uh, mm-hmm. it was tied to the dollar. Gotcha. We were, may I just say that my family and I were then living in Germany. My ex-husband was um, working in a hospital, in an army hospital. And the bottom just, as you will remember, the bottom just fell out of the U.S. dollar vis-a-vis other, other currencies. Um, so we were, you know, we were being paid the same number of dollars we had been being paid for the last couple of years in the army, but it was now worth a lot less, right, um, than it had been before. So um, it was one of those really sort of shocking things, I guess. And apparently you're going to say that it's made a huge difference in what we can do and what the government does do and so on. But it was kind of an interesting time to be there and not really to understand, I have to say, exactly what was going on, you know, what Nixon was doing or anything else. And probably weren't the only ones like that. No, no. Our problem was mostly because we were in Germany and we're living in a German place and we had to pay bills and Mm -hmm. Deutschmark and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, um, you know, the value of the dollar was not tied to the gold supply, you know, by the 1970s. And, um, you know, it's but, you know, you may ask, why why is the dollar even valuable or why is it even useful? Um, I online sometimes people will say, oh, the the dollar is worthless because it's not backed by any commodity. And oh, yeah. and, And I always write to the person, I say, 
you know, let me help you. I will take all of those worthless dollars <laughs> off of your hands. Right. Here's my address. Please send them to me. Right. And I've not gotten a single dollar. <laughs> so apparently it's worth something, you know. Apparently so. Apparently so. Um, <laughs> and we hear that all the time for certain kinds of people. That's right. You That's have right. Certain kinds of yeah. visions of how the world works. Exactly. Well, and but here's the answer to that question: what what does give the dollar its value? And um, and charterless, which is a term uh, that Beersley Rummel is a charterless, and there's actually quite a few of them in the United States and around the world now. Um, that's an economic v- viewpoint of the government. Um, Charles like Rummel would give today, uh, the answer that Rummel would give today is that demand for the dollar is based on the federal government accepting no payment of taxes, again, taxes, hmm. except in dollars. So you can't pay your taxes oh. in Canadian dollars. You can't pay your taxes in gold. You can't pay your taxes in grain that you harvested. Only U.S. dollars hmm. are accepted and everyone pays taxes. So that creates the demand for the dollar, at least a, a, like a floor demand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other things that influence the value of it, but at least that that is what keeps these worthless pa- pieces of paper uh, valuable. Um, and Rummel, as we, sh- we shall soon see, describes further use of taxes to create and maintain the value of the con- currency. Here's Rum- Rummel making his point, quote, Final freedom from the domestic money market exists for every sovereign national state where there exists an institution which functions in the manner of a modern central bank and whose currency is not convertible into gold or into some other commodity. The United States is a national state which has a central banking system, the Federal Reserve System, and whose currency um, is not convertible into any commodity. It follows that our federal government has final freedom from the money market in meeting its financial requirements. And hmm. So a fiat currency with a modern central bank that operates the money system, such as we have here in the U.S. today, uh, does not need to borrow money from the money market if its bills exceed its tax revenue. Correct. So it you've taken the money market people, the bankers and you know rich people who were loaning money to the government at high interest rates. Um, they 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 don't need to be around anymore. You know, the government mm-hmm. does not have to depend on them um, because the central bank can now just create money, not based on the supply of gold or any other commodity, to cover deficits without crashing the system. As Stephanie Kelton has pointed out in her excellent book, which I highly recommend everyone to read, and it's very easy to read, uh, her book is called The Deficit Myth. Um, And in that book, she says the only economic restraint on the federal government to create all the money it wants is that if there is no demand in the real economy for more dollars and the government creates more, inflation will be the result. And as mm-hmm. listeners know already, inflation is the erosion of the value of the dollar. Well, so we're experiencing high inflation today, Mark. Is that from the federal budget deficit? That's a good question. And I actually talked 
online with someone today about that very same thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, we've covered in previous shows that today's inflation is not because of the federal budget deficit. It's be- several reasons. One is that it's right. uh, supply chain issues, mm-hmm. two, the economic <laughs> san- sanctions placed on Russia by the U.S., and three, just plain profiteering by the corporations. Right. The federal budget deficit yeah. is not, not in that order. Yeah, no, not in that order. No. But I, but I do think that the uh, the sanctions are going to start taking a bigger chunk, uh, because as you know, uh, Northwestern Energy is requesting a twenty eight percent increase in in what it charges for natural gas and electricity. Twenty eight percent. Is that increase. all? Is that all? Yeah. Oh, there's a show topic. And is and sure. is that because of the sanctions, or is that because of corporate price gadget? gadget? Uh, it, it's partly because of sanctions, because the price of uh, supplies of of gasoline, natural gas, fuel that they use is going right. up uh-huh. around the world, and uh, and because uh, well, and it's we'll see how much of that is corporate profiteering because um, the. Public Service Commission has until August to decide whether to whether to grant it or how much to grant. So, right. um, but we'll see about that. Um, Do we trust know. the Public Service Commission too? Uh, yeah, that's, that's another uh, issue. That's right? another day. For <laughs> that's another day. day. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, and neither, and so neither is rising wages much of a factor either, right? That's a exactly. That's a pretty right. negligible factor. Um, And here is Rummel again, quote, accordingly, the inevitable social and economic consequences of any and all taxes have now become the prime consideration in the imposition of taxes. In general, it may be said that since all taxes have consequences of a social and economic character, the government should look to those these consequences in formulating its tax policy. All federal taxes must meet the test of public policy and practical effect. The public purpose which is served should never be obscured in a tax program under the mask of raising revenue, end quote. And what do you hear in all the tax debates and the deficit ceilings and all that crap that's going on now in D.C.? Is, uh, well, we can't afford it and uh, mm-hmm. You need taxes to raise revenue. That th- those are the two arguments, and Rummel is saying, you know, a pox on both of you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he he would not he would not uh, he he would be highly critical of what's going on in Congress right now. Wow! And he'd have a lot of company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. So then, back to the question: What are taxes for today, if not to raise revenue? Okay, and here's Beardsley Rummel again answering that question. Number one, um, taxes are an instrument of fiscal policy to help stabilize the purchasing power of the dollar. We Mm -hmm. actually already covered that. Uh, Number two, to express public policy in the distribution of wealth and of income, as in the case of the progressive income and estate taxes. We haven't covered that one. Three, to express public policy in subsidizing or in penalizing various industries and economic groups. And four, to isolate and assess directly the costs of certain national benefits, such such as highways and social security. He continues, 
In the recent past, we have used our federal tax program consciously for each of these purposes. In serving these purposes, the tax program is a means to an end. The purposes themselves are matters of basic national policy, which should be established in the first instance independently of any national tax program. So, you know, the most, uh, so basically he's saying a lot of stuff there. Number one yeah. mm-hmm. is that yeah. is that outcomes should be the, the main point of debate. Um, and oh, how taxes are used, if they're even used in that, is, is like a secondary question. Mm. Uh, number two is that taxes are, um, are, 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 are useful public tools. They've been around for 5,000 years. There's a reason mm-hmm. why governments for 5,000 years have had taxes. And, um, in part, and it, it, some, many, many of them to raise revenue, but also to the, do these other four uh, public, um, you know, public functions, right? It's a, it's a, it's a tool, is what it is. It's not evil incarnate. It's a tool. Um, and in my view, uh, the of these purposes for federal taxation, uh, the most important are the first two: to control inflation. That was the first one. Maintain the value. Uh, per, uh, the purchasing power of the dollar. And the second is to redistribute wealth. All right. Um, and so taxes maintain the value of the currency in multiple ways. One, by creating a demand for the dollars to begin with. But two, also, if there is too many dollars in the economy, they can just start taxing people who've got a lot of dollars and take them out of the economy through taxation. Okay. That can ha- that is m- way more effective at controlling inflation than the Federal Reserve monkeying with uh, discount rates and in right rates. right um, just grab the money and take it out of circulation. Mm-hmm. So may may I ask you or make a comment here? Yes. Mark? Um, as I read these four um, things, what are taxes for? Yep. It seems to me that taxes, according to Rummel, have mostly a rhetorical purpose. Mm-hmm. That is, that they, they work as the speech from the government about what is important to the government. So if you, if the government's willing to spend tax, you see, that's what I mean. Yeah. If they're making a point of the kinds of programs that the government wants to support. Right. Right. Or if there is, and I think back before he said something about making a statement about the kind of country we want to be. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. So it seems to me that taxes have a rhetorical aim as much as the aim of, and, and don't we, don't we later on say, oh, and I guess this is number four where, where we've said before that taxes are partly to make citizens aware of how much these programs cost, right? right? right. So it's looking as though taxes don't have any real fiscal and any real practical monetary use, but they make a lot of points about the government, about what our government wants to support, what our government doesn't want to support, therefore subsidies and things like that. Um, and they make appointment, uh, an 
appoint to people who receive, who benefit by programs, how much those programs cost. There is that function, but I, I would say that in terms of revenue for programs, okay, Rummel said, no, uh-huh. that's it's not necessary. I mean, taxes do, in, in like in number four, isolate and assess directly the cost of certain national benefits, such as highways and social security. You know, there's high, there's gas taxes that you pay when you fill up your mm-hmm. car with yeah. gas. And that goes, you know, basically it's to show that, look, you're, you, you're using the highways, you know, you're going to, you're going to pay something for it. And same with social security is that right. you're going to get some benefits. So you got to pay into it, right? You, you have to have yeah. some skin in the game with right. it, but social security taxes do not pay for all of the expenses on social security, right. nor right. do the highway federal gas tax pay for all of the expenses of the highways. So, mm-hmm. um, and uh, his point is that, um, and that difference is made up usually by Congress ordering the Federal Reserve to create more money, okay, mm-hmm. and to pay for that. Um, but I, I'd say it's more than rhetorical because uh, number one, um, it, it it's more political economic, right, than government budget. The government needs to decide, and this is what we elect governments for, right, to make priorities. This is what we need to accomplish. And taxes are a tool, okay, and they can be used in different ways uh, to achieve that end. But his point being is that we need to set the priorities first not based on how much tax revenue we have, but based on what the outcomes for American citizens are. That's his. That's one of his big points, uh, and it's not necessary because the, you know, the federal government can never go broke unless it's complete incompetent knuckleheads that are running it. But it can really never go broke. There mm-hmm. is there is because it just creates more money mm-hmm. to pay its bills, right? Mm-hmm. That's you know when the government borrows money, it doesn't have to borrow anything anymore. It's as he said clearly, governments are free of the money markets. So then people say, well, why do they? Why does government borrow? It's actually more a place for people to put their dollars in, okay, to take them out of circulation um, if that's mm-hmm. what they want to control inflation um, instead of doing taxes. It's sort of like self-taxation as it were, right? You're putting money into a money account or buying treasury bills, you know, treasury bonds. Um, People around the world buy treasury bonds uh, because they have dollars and they can't spend it necessarily in, you know, every day in Bombay, India, but they can buy treasury bonds, right? And they give, you know, basically that's the so-called loan to the federal government. Federal government doesn't need to do that. It's kind of a service actually to to help mop up, you know, excess dollars and to have some place where people can invest a little bit of money and maybe make a little bit of money off of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's, that's what that's all about. Um, so, and and he's not, you know, uh, like I said, uh, Stephanie Kelton is very articulate. There's a whole school of economists now um, who, uh, you know, operate under the modern monetary theory. This Rummel is is kind of uh, one piece of this. It's the chartalist piece of 
uh, of this. And uh, Abba Lerner is another big uh, chartalist economist. Um, and what they present is very simple. It doesn't take a lot of math to figure this out, right? It's, it's, it's a very accessible way of understanding economics. And mostly the math usually is to obfuscate <laughs> and hide mm -hmm. what's actually going on and not reveal what's going on. So that's, that's part of what that's about. Um, so taxes are a tool, you know, um, and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, the other, so maintaining the value of the currency, that's a really, really important value of taxes, both mm -hmm. in inflation control and just creating value mm -hmm. for the dollar. The second, I think most important is which we should be doing way more now is taxing the rich um, yes. for the sake of our democracy, right? We cannot have mm -hmm. a democracy. Aristotle has told us this many, many years ago um, that, uh, you know, either, either you have an oligarchy or you have a democracy. We have an oligarchy in this country because the rich run the place. Yeah. And the way we change that, one of the, the biggest tools to change that is to tax billionaires out of existence. And um, and that money can be destroyed. It doesn't need to be go into any treasury. It just needs to be taken out of their hands so they can't use it to buy the government. And if we did that, that would make a rhetorical point. Mm -hmm. See, well, I don't I don't degrade rhetoric as much as you might. I mean, you're saying. Oh, OK, you're, you're so. Right? so but yes. if we were to say we are going to or even in our in our tax policy, we are going to tax billionaires out of existence. That makes an important rhetorical point about I the see. States, I see. right? Which says we don't want billionaires. Right. They ought to be there, right? So yeah, okay. Well, I, I mean, I'm I'm not an economist. I was married to one once. <laughs> this is a painful sort of discussion to me, but uh, good. Okay, because I'm learning, I'm understanding this better. But I think those actions which say this is who we are, mm -hmm. right? I, I see your point now, right? I yeah. understand. Yeah, okay. I see how are you using the word rhetoric? Right, right. I think right. is is not how usually it's a disparaging mm -hmm. term, right? It's it just, often is, words. right? Yeah. But as someone put, yeah, okay, go ahead. Right. So it's not for me. I think rhetoric is really yeah. important, and if our rhetoric were clearer in this country, <laughs> we'd be in better. In shape. the political process, but, uh, it's uh, unfortunately not. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we still talk democracy. Okay, yeah. thank you. So, so I see the term civic virtue. The taxes are a civic virtue by defending the value of money we use every day and by protecting a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But um, are, 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 are we going to touch on the fact that so many people that have a lot of money um, take it out of circulation <laughs> So that it's essentially making making income a a more scarce good, which should be, which which should be affecting the entire process. Um, for example, you know, it was a study by uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research and similar research by the IRS with uh, data from nineteen from twenty sixteen, and they found that there's like two trillion of u.s households in tax havens which means it's you know taken off the table so you got to work with what's left over 
and uh, and they go on to identify the usual villains, those that have the least but are the fewest in number. I, you know, I don't want to elaborate because I don't know how this fits in with with the rest of your uh, well, discussion, Mark. It, it, it totally fits in. Um, oh, okay. And you and you took that from the blog, uh, the the lever in its April eighteenth edition, mm-hmm. an article called "Tax Free Day for the Ultra Wealthy," which is mm-hmm. um, yeah. and and, um, and there's a similar thing going on in the UK. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they, they have a similar society, and it's even more profound and and more rampant there. Well, and so so there you go. So how do you, um, you know, actually the the U.S. Supreme Court and the Biden administration both have been undermining attempts to try to repatriate that money that that's oh, I know. offshore tax <laughs> tax shores uh, because yeah. they're they're serving the wealthy right at this point. Right. Um, and and uh, so I mean, Rummel would say, look, I mean, th- this is part of the decline of of the United States. I think he would say, right? This is mm-hmm. th- this is impoverishing the majority of us, and it's right. undermining our economy um, in many ways, and it's undermining our democracy. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's fairly. You know that letting the rich get away without paying taxes and letting them, you know, hide trillions of dollars offshore. Um, who who does that benefit? Doesn't benefit anybody but that rich person, right? It it actually yeah. hurts <laughs> everybody else. And, and some small countries and even smaller islands. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and, right, and right. you're absolutely right because you know FATCA, the you know foreign. Accounting Tax Compliance Act. It was was passed in 2010, mm-hmm. and it's been and it's been chiseled away, and it's been sidelined, and and delaying actions have been going on, and um, you know, you know, as of now, there are 94 countries that are signed on to that law, mm-hmm. if it's implemented, and wow. and uh. Rand Paul, our great friend, has been leading a GOP effort to repeal the entire bill, not just delay it, just get rid of it completely and ignore the problem. Right. And uh, the enforcement action was going to be, you know, if a bank was found doing this, there would be a 30 percent withholding tax that hasn't been implemented. Right. So it's just been that's it was a good tool that has been ignored. Right. Well, like the Dodd-Frank. The, the exactly yeah, yeah. Right. in the so same spirit it, get themselves together to pass it well and then I, little by little i i would i would even argue dodd frank was really um not significant enough when it was passed no absolutely i i think oh, yeah oh for sure but it was you know but even but even the that band-aid was, was too big they yeah, yeah. They didn't want even that wasn't in the bleeding Right. right. And so and so there has to be enforcement. That's the the job of the executive branch of government in our mm-hmm. three branch system. And right. um, so, you know, who has the executive branch? Well, you know, lately it's been Obama, Trump and Biden. OK, so uh, they have not been doing their job and they've been you know, all of them been carrying the water for uh, the wealthy to get, let them keep their money. Um, which probably most of that was just was uh, surplus value taken from workers. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And and anyway, so you always have to get back to that. It's stolen, Surpl- stolen from yeah. workers' labor. All every worker, you know, at some level, 
And so now they're trying to hide it and create a system where they don't have to, you know, account for it or pay any taxes or anything like that. I think, um, you know, uh, again, it does matter that this is, this is the big argument. I used to be a lot more sort of cynical about the federal government and about, uh, I mean, I still am, but (laughs) the, um, the uh, uh, you know stuff isn't happening there. It's it's so hopeless there. But it was Rummel and some other people who were convincing me otherwise that um, they have control. They have control over the military for one, but they also have control over the money system uh, through the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. And everybody depends on a dollar maintaining its value, and everybody depends on having a democracy. So how, you know, uh, this, this, this is of great consequence when the oligarchs run things and not the people. Huge. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well-intended mm-hmm. legislation is passed in time. And then the people that didn't want any part of it, you know, take a sledgehammer to it. Right. Exactly. And, you know, um, it, what Rummel is saying here is that um, if we want to have Medicare for all or healthcare, everyone, everyone, we make real the rights of people to have healthcare, make real the rights to have adequate housing, make real to end hunger. If we want to forgive student debt. If we want to fight climate catastrophe as a political body, we do not need to yes. depend on collecting the taxes of wealthy people to pay for these solutions. So, you know, when Democrats go, well, we, you know, tax the rich, I'm all for that, right? But Rummel is not saying tax the rich to pay for these, these policy priorities. He's saying tax the rich because democracy depends on it. Mm-hmm. Billionaires and millionaires do not coexist with democracy. It just cannot happen. And so uh and and that's and that is a much more broader rhetorical mm-hmm. you know argument, right? Rather than this sort of narrow economic uh uh and in fact really the proper name of economics is not economics, it's political economy because mm-hmm. because there is no economics, none, zero, absolutely none without a polity, right? Without a government, without a politics. The two are inextricably bound together. And the separation of the two just yields stupid things. Right. And, you know, another answer that hasn't come up is maybe letting, you know, revenue and value accumulate in the hands of the owners of capital and then trying to to claw back that which um, the society really needs and deserves um, isn't the optimal answer. You know, lots of countries in Europe use a value-added tax. So it's being incrementally pulled out so that you don't have to go to Mr. Topham Hat at the end of the day and say, okay, you who own all in your domain, now this is your share that you have to give back to us. And he'll complain. No, I won't. Mm-hmm. But Jim, why? Why would 
look, the federal government can create as much money as it wants within, you know, certain okay. inflation limits. There's no need to tax to pay for programs. There is no need. Okay, so you think the premise is wrong. It's not where the money's coming from. It's is it even necessary? It, it, look, okay. it's sort of it's sort is of it like, even acceptable? Is it even acceptable when a in a democracy? I, I mean, there there's no shortage of money. Okay, I'm just going to say this right now, and and there never can be. The federal U.S. federal government can always pay its bills, always, 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 because it just if it doesn't have the tax revenue or other revenue to pay, they just create the money. In fact, they don't really, you know, when it gets right down to it. There's many historically governments never use tax money to pay for programs. When taxes came in, mm -hmm. in the in the form, if it was in currency of some currency form, they would burn it, mm. burn the money. The government would, and that's how the uh, House of Commons one time the Parliament building burned down. In 1860 something, okay, it's very famous. You could look it up. They burned it. It burned down because uh, the uh, the British government decided that instead of tally sticks, which was really ancient mm -hmm. form of money, okay, uh, that they wanted to get entirely do away with tally sticks and go to the you know the. the the pound currency and the, the coins in the in the in the you know in the British pound, and they were they had a incinerator in the basement of the Parliament, and they had they put too many tally sticks in there to burn because they would come in as tax payments, and they burn you know they set the Parliament building on fire. Okay, so wow, you, you, people got to understand. That there's no shortage of money. It is it it is not a scarce commodity. The federal government can create. In fact, it, it, since I did a calculation a while back, but since the year 2000, I think the federal government has has in itself. I mean, banks create money too. By the way, right? They create the biggest mm -hmm. bulk of the money through loans, giving loans. But the federal government uh, and the banks have together created something on the order of like seventeen billion or trillion dollars since the year two thousand. Seventeen trillion dollars, and there's you know they could do another seventeen trillion, no problem, except for inflation that they have to watch out for that. They just create the money if they need it, they create it. And and this is the, the this is the freedom from the financial markets, right? So mm -hmm. and and from you know not from taxes, but from taxes to pay for programs. So there's Got other it. other important, very vital uses for taxes other than you know creating money for programs. So there's no, I mean, I guess put it this way: we've been being lied to constantly about you know, like the federal deficit, as if that's a problem. But yeah, pe people, Isn't that the truth, people don't think about it in this way. So the federal government's deficit is the American people's surplus. It's mm -hmm. double entry bookkeeping, you can't, I mean, how you measure how you measure federal government's deficit, it's uh, uh, expenditures minus revenues, right? And so mm -hmm. if revenues are less than expenditures, you have a deficit, so-called, right? But where does that money go? Where does that extra money go? It goes generally into the American economy.
Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to balance the budget in 10 years, right, um, so that there's no federal budget deficit whatsoever, the federal government would have to tax um, three about $3.5 trillion net out of the economy every mm-hmm. year for 10 years. And what would that do? That we, we would see the biggest depression that we that the world has ever seen or right. we've ever seen in this country. Right. Since Andrew Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> we've already played that game. Yeah. Well, and it, it would be even worse than that because oh, I know. Because it's so much bigger. But Absolutely. so so you know, if if it would cause economic catastrophe to balance the budget. Uh, you know, the only explanation for that would be that uh, taxes aren't needed for government programs. It's 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 a very logical uh, right. kind of thing. And huh. um, but we but we're conditioned to think like in terms of our household budget that the federal government is like our household budget. You are listening to KFGM one hundred one point five FM. Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming also on 1015kfgm.org. And it clearly isn't because no. um, if, you Never, know, Jim, if you were to, you know, if you were to create money, because you you were short this month and paying whatever, and you go down to your basement and you crank out, a, you know, a few hundred dollar bills, um, you would go to jail eventually for that. Right, but the federal government mm. won't, because <laughs> they're the sovereign yeah. issuer of the con- currency. Yeah, um, it's very and but it's very liberating in terms of the rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. That we could, right. we can afford in the world's ri- the history's richest nation. We can afford to house everybody, right? Mm-hmm. We can afford to end hunger. Mm-hmm. We can afford to provide health care for everybody. We can afford all of this, it, but only if we get get rid of the notion that taxes pay for programs. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and I offer as an aside that uh, the the accounting model is a static model. It presumes that there is no growth, there is no improvement, there is no gain in productivity, there is no invention. <laughs> There's and that right. the size of the economy moves in relation to how well you fertilize it and invest in it. Right. And sometimes deficit spending is what's required to create a future. Who, um, For example, paying tuition to educate yourself better. That's a good we have one. a perfect economic model from the GI Bill. And the most conservative number provided is that it paid for itself seven times over simply in the increase in tax revenues from the people that had higher standard of living from being better educated. And that's so, and and that's just a sliver because right. it doesn't include the fact that they had a bigger home, that they took more vacations, they had more to eat. Right. Uh, and, they and they bought recreational opportunities. And that's the most important thing. The tax revenues are I agree. Is a measure. And that's mm-hmm. it's you know rather not as significant as it sounds. And that's not the reason to do things is because of tax revenue, but but because it improved people's lives and it, right. and it added to our community, it added to our society in positive ways. That's the important thing. And this is what Rummel is saying, is that all this talk about like 
you know, tax policy is secondary. We have to decide what we want as a society. We have to in yeah. in, in the rhetoric. You know, of, another example is, yep. yeah. Uh, you know, back in the day, California gave people an education. You know, much like the right. European model. And and what happened in a in a decade or a generation, you know, and now has that economy the size of Germany. Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe more. Before, it had little. It had it had pockets of um, technology and you know urban living, but it was primarily a, a um, agricultural state. Right. And what is it now? Just because they let people become as smart as they were willing to be. Once the cost assigned to that opportunity was removed, yeah, mm-hmm. and we it's so today we've really learned that lesson. Well, there are people in the legislature that want to make sure that oh, and actually it's in the judiciary now <laughs> that it's unfair to those that can afford education on their own for people to who couldn't having their student loans forgiven. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, that's that smacks to me like trying to maintain a class ordered society. It, exactly, and that's where the lie comes in is to protect mm-hmm. exactly that. Um, economics and politics should be, and political economy should be all about making people's lives better. And instead, it's turned, amen. It's been turned on its head, and it's mm-hmm. it's all about like it's all about. F- numbers and you know can we balance the budget and all this kind of stuff which is is is, you know is is not the primary uh, purpose i say it's all about protecting privilege well that's exactly right Uh that's what Uh it is about so they got to resort to they got to resort to lies in order to protect Mm -hmm. Uh as usual uh lots of news to cover from this week Uh, what's first in our current news mark Well, despite 28 months of vaccines against COVID-19 being available in the U.S., the pandemic is still with us as the vaccines are unable to prevent infection or transmission. On March 10th, the Johns Hopkins University stopped collecting data on the COVID pandemic. Now we will be taking our COVID data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and at their website. As a note on the CDC, Many scientists and others question the validity and accuracy of the CDC's case numbers because of the prevalence of unreported home tests, lack of uniform data reporting requirements by the states, and the incompetency of the CDC. That being said, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now falling at a rate of about 13,500 cases a day down from over 1.3 million per day on January 10th, 2022, a little over a year ago, Mm -hmm. uh, which was by far the highest rates for the U.S. during the entire pandemic. At over 1,140,000 deaths, the U.S. is still by far the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent to the population of the city of San Jose, California. The U.S. has so far accounted for at least 16% of all the deaths in the world, and even with unreliable data for 15% of the confirmed cases, all was still only 4% of the world's population. Oh, those are still grim things to be exceptional at, which we have been saying every week for years now. For years, yep. Yes, indeed. 
So what's the situation now in Montana? Well, according to the state of Montana COVID-19 website, uh, Montana has had 3,708 deaths from COVID. That's 15 deaths in the last four weeks. So people are still dying in Montana from COVID. This total number of deaths is about equal to that of the population of the town of Hardin, Montana. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a falling rate of about 49 new documented cases a day. A full 25% of all Montanans have had or have COVID. And there are currently 23 people hospitalized with the virus, down 23 from four weeks ago. We have been saying this since February of 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors as best you can, to distance yourself from others as best you can, and to frequently wash your hands if we are going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. What's our next story, Mark? Um, We have been covering the Montana legislature in its descent into authoritarian Christian nationalism and neoliberalism. The majority has embarrassed Montanans on the national stage several times this session, but they may have outdid themselves this past week. Senate Bill 99, sponsored by Republican Senator John Fuller of Kalispell, cynically entitled, quote, Provide for a Youth Health Protection Act, will restrict gender-affirming health care for trans minors. This is how the Montana Free Press characterized Senate Bill 99 and its route through the Montana legislature on April 18th. Quote, the bill to ban specific medical treatments for transgender minors who want to live their lives in congruence with how they feel about their gender instead of abiding by the label of male or female they were given at birth, sailed through the Republican-held chambers earlier in the session over the vocal opposition of Democrats. Governor Greg Gianforti said he shared Republican lawmakers, quote, profound commitment to protect Montana children from invasive medical treatments, end quote, while dismissing many of the medical best practices for how to treat adolescents and teens struggling with gender dysphoria, going as far as to call gender-affirming care a misleading term equivalent to Orwellian newspeak. Well, he would know about Orwellian newspeak. (laughs) Um, Gianforte wrote, Senate Bill 99 protects Montana children from permanent life-altering medical procedures until they are adults mature enough to make such serious health decisions, end quote. Republicans in the Senate and House largely endorsed Gianforte's revisions later that day and on Tuesday, but none of the governor's revisions won approval from the groups that the bill would affect, transgender, non-binary, and two-spirit Montanans and their families, and much of the state's medical community, who say access to a breadth of treatments helps protect trans youth from depression and suicide which they experience at disproportionately higher rates compared to other minors. Dr. Lauren Wilson, um, actually we've interviewed uh, Dr. Wilson on our show in the past, uh, and she is the president of the Montana chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, said in a Monday statement about Gianforti's amendments, quote, just like all routine care pediatricians provide, gender affirming care is safe, collaborative, and developmentally appropriate. This bill is an overly broad blanket ban that takes decisions that should be made by families and physicians and puts them in the hands of politicians. What could go wrong? 
Um, she didn't didn't say that, but (laughs) um, she continues, the Montana medical community has been united in opposing this bill throughout the legislative process, end quote. On April 18th, uh, the House had a floor debate on the governor's proposed amendments. And uh, Missoula Representative Zoe Zephyr, uh, uh, the first trans person in the Montana legislature, rose to oppose the bill. And I have a uh, I have an audio tape here that we're going to listen to, and uh, to hear exactly what Representative Zephyr said on the floor of the Montana House on uh, April 18th. If you disallow the use of the medical care that is accepted by every major medical association, if you disallow that care and don't allow people to to have access to that, the only therapy left is either A, meaningless, or B, conversion therapy, which is torture. I also want to point out, again, gender-affirming care is not Orwellian newspeak, as it says in this letter. It is accepted by every major medical association. I will also say what I said down in committee earlier. Uh, this bill uses, um, tries to define male and female as binary. You could not legislate binary sex any more than you could legislate the, that the earth is flat. Intersex people exist, trans people exist, and this bill doesn't change that. Um, Lastly, I would say that there were conversations at the end of this, uh, at the very end of the bill, uh, the letter that says life-altering medical procedures should wait until they are adults. Um, What I will say is if you are, by this bill and by what these amendments do, if you are forcing a trans child to go through puberty when they are trans, that is tantamount to torture. And this body should be ashamed. And if you vote yes on this amendment and yes on this bill, Ooh, I love this. Does everyone want to stand? Representative Zephyr, would you like to close? Oh, sorry, I'm yielding to the Majority Leader. Majority Leader Venton. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I speak on behalf of our caucus. We will not be shamed by anyone in this chamber. We are better than that. Representative Zephyr. The only thing I will say is if if you vote yes on this bill, And yes, on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. Pretty strong. Uh, Because of that, um, the next day, and then also uh, uh, subsequent days in the legislature, the Speaker of the House, Representative Matt Regeer of Kalispell, refused to call on Zephyr until she apologized to the House. She has refused and will likely go through the rest of the House session gagged. Zephyr was quoted in the Montana Free Press on April 20th, quote, I have lost friends to suicide this year. I field the calls from multiple families who dealt with suicide attempts, with trans youth who have fled the state, people who have been attacked on the side of the road, because of legislation like this. I spoke with clarity and precision about the harm these bills do. And they say they want an apology, but what they really want is silence as they take away the rights of trans and queer Montanans." End quote. Wow. 
Well, um, you know, this is the first time I've heard her entire statement. Um, and I guess the question now is, how how are these rules being applied? Are they usually applied in the same way? And so on and so forth. Or is this just a matter of trying to silence people who say things that the legislature doesn't want to hear? Um, and of course, the same kind of thing has happened in Tennessee recently. Right. Um, and I don't know whether these bad ideas are all just popping up from the legislatures or whether there is some kind of moving force that's advancing these in the legislatures. So um, I don't know what to say about this. I just um, think the pain of people who want this kind of treatment and this kind of care is going to be immense. And I don't know who decides that they may not have it. So that's all I have. Yeah. Yeah. I, it disturbs me a lot <laughs> because I've had a lot of exposure to mental health professionals and they do the very best they can. And they're dealing with utilizing a science that's evolving to make people's lives better. And the Montana legislature makes it sound like, um, you know, recognizing, you know, not non-binary orientation is the same thing as giving people lobotomies, you know, that there's something harmful and terrible that's going on that, that's preventing people from, uh, you know, interfering with their basic nature. And uh, the future will win out and show us our success and failures at trying to, you know, make laws about how people should behave or how they should live. And we're usually wrong. Right. Right. Okay. At this point, I'm going to put in the interview. Well said, both of you, by the way. Um, very, oh, thanks, Mark. It was very moving. Um, uh, Sandy Birch's um, interview, which is like 12 minutes long. It's about the Montana people's veto, and mm. um, uh, it, which is something that I'm working very <laughs> very much on too. Well, and what we're going to be doing is uh, um, uh, we're gathering signatures. We've got a couple hundred signatures already and we're shooting for a thousand. And then on May 1st, we're going to go visit the governor and give that to him and say, veto all these bad bills, including Senate Bill 99, right? But but by no means is that the only one, right? There's, there's so many uh, horrible bills that attacked the judiciary, attacked the citizen initiative process, that um, attacked the Constitution, that attack working people, that favor the rich. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it is all for it's all there for people to see, and and um, and we know he's not going to veto that. Um, and you you know, I'm sort of giving you the summary of the interview, but we know he's not going to veto. But it's the first step in running probably uh, trying to build a coalition with uh, Montana DSA and others to run a couple of major ballot initiatives across the state um, in 2024 and to try to unelect some of these, you know, 
some of these fascists really is what they are. Um, there was uh, Susan Weber, who's, who's um, uh, I think she's Blackfeet. She's part of the Native American caucus uh, in, in, the rule, in the rules committee that, you know, sided with the Speaker of the House, right, in censoring her. She says, no, this is fascism. And, and they threatened her with censure, too. And they and they back they backed they backed off a little bit because I think they know that they've they've gone too far. Um, so so in some ways it's a you know it may be a blessing in disguise. Um, I wonder I wonder how often do they censure people or how long often do they see this is rare. the thing when we were talking about the Tennessee issue actually on Facebook a few days ago. And um, I, I said something in support of the Tennessee three and do you know, John Andrzejczyk? Yes, I know John. (laughs) Okay. Well, I've never met him except on Facebook, but we have kind of a nice relationship on Facebook, but we disagree about a lot of things. And he immediately said, um, and you may have read this, he immediately sent me a message saying, if this had been right-wingers standing up to interrupt a, you know, an assembly, would you have approved of them? And I said, well, of, of this action, and I said, well, I would have if it seemed to me that the legislature was being consistent in the way it applied its rules. Right. Right. But my sense is that they haven't done this when other people did a similar thing. Right. So this is where I think it's interesting if they censure an an indigenous woman and a trans person. Um, and they've probably never censured or silenced a white guy. And um, it's, you know, it's like it's like Elizabeth Warren a couple of years ago when who the speaker of the house said, you know, she had to leave the house because she had persisted when they told her to shut up. Nevertheless, she persisted. Right. And, you know, it's that kind of thing that really just gives you the heebie jeebies about where yeah. we're going. I know that's probably a racist thing, but really well, where are we going that these guys have taken it into their heads that can just do whatever they want. They right? th- th- this well, th- 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 that that is a really accurate description of the majority in the Montana legislature right now. Yeah, I, they they feel watching. totally entitled to do whatever they damn well please. Right. right. And and, right. Uh, uh, and and I suspect that it, it's a similar kind of attitude in Tennessee and in Oklahoma there was uh, a, uh, I think she, she was a non-binary, first non-binary legislator in the United States. Uh-huh. She got censored as well over exactly the same kind of bill. And, and to your point, Jim, it, or, or, or I forget who said it, but yeah, this is, this is a concerted effort, right? This is, this is an organized effort. This is not by, these guys aren't coming up with this themselves. I know some of these legislators and they're not smart enough to know to figure this uh-huh. kind of stuff out. They really aren't. So they're just they're just uh, handmaids of God, as it were. Um, yeah. And it looks to think? me, I mean, it's not it's not even the kind of thing that you would expect from 
Alec or that I would expect from Alec. Right. But maybe it's maybe they're into this also. Maybe Alec is into this also. I think of them as, you know, sort of more. Well, economic. I, I, yeah, they're they're Yeah, they're more economic. And, and right. what, what this also can do, there's some other damage that can be done with actions like this is that they're fighting a culture war. Right. And they're mm -hmm. fighting. And so a lot of liberals will come back and fight right back the culture war, which, you know, I think is fine, but then mm -hmm. totally forget the whole uh, benefiting the wealthy and the undermining of our democratic institutions. That's far more serious. I mean, I, I, look, I'm, I'm saying I don't like this bill at all. And this is on our list of bills to veto, but undermining our democracy and, yeah. and, and kowtowing to the rich is the, it affects everybody, right? And it affects mm -hmm. people, very and so you get a distraction, so you're not looking at that kind of stuff. I think right. you know there's some intentionality about that. Right, right. We have with us today on Voice of the People, uh, Sandy Birch. Uh, Sandy has been a co-host a couple of times, been interviewed a couple of times on our show, and she's back again. Um, and Sandy is co-chair of the Western Montana Democratic Socialists of America. Welcome to the show again, Sandy. Thank you. It's great to be here, as always. All right. Um, so I understand uh, very well <laughs> that uh, uh, there is a project that you are working on that uh, Montana DSA is working on. Could you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So the Montana People's Veto uh, is a petition that we have put together basically in uh, opposition to the uh, terrible extremist legislation that is passing through the Montana state legislature. So our demand in the petition is that Governor Gianforte veto um, the worst of these bills or refuse to enforce them. Um, and they are, so all constitutional amendments, um, the uh, tax on abortion access, um, tax cuts for the wealthy, a tax on trans rights and tenants' rights. Those, um, those are the bills that we included in the Montana People's Veto and that we're asking Gianforte to to veto those, um, we do understand that uh, it's unlikely that he will veto these. However, at this point, we really feel like it's our only way to make the voices of everyday Montanans heard at this legislature. I think that one of the things that we've seen and the whole premise of this petition is that the Monta this, this 2023 legislature has totally failed everyday ordinary working Montanans and they haven't addressed any of these issues that are <clears throat> really important just for uh, just for us as we go about our lives. So how, how we access housing, how we access health care, um, uh, how we access public services that we need but are now you know non-existent or underfunded because they're giving huge tax cuts to the wealthiest among us who don't need it, that kind of stuff. And so um, instead of instead of really delivering for everyday Montanans, this legislature has uh, failed us, and that is and focused on this extremist far right agenda that we believe and 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 know actually from the research and the polling that's being done recently is that most Montanans 
agree with us in that they 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 want to see you know our their basic needs met and uh they want to see their lives become less precarious and challenging um financially and uh since that hasn't happened um we just wanted to really speak to like the majority of montanans and things that we know that that everybody cares about that are under attack yeah it seems um i've been up to the legislature several times been pretty involved with with it and it seems like they are bent on uh conducting a culture war uh against everyone that isn't like them um and uh at the same time uh undermining government's ability to really provide for the people and give the wealthy and corporations uh, a big hand up does that that's my impression is that your impression too yeah absolutely they they don't they don't value and i mean i guess i should be specific when i say they I mean, extreme right wing. I call them fascist Republicans. I think that people, you know, debate the use of the term fascist. I I think that I like to call a spade a spade. Um, and so uh, these these fascists are, uh, you know, unfortunately they they have a lot of working class rhetoric and uh, re and Republicans in. Montana are proud to be Republicans. And so they get elected just based on the R behind their name. But a lot of a lot of the people who vote for them, um, who are either swing voters or conservative voters, but they, they still don't. I still don't think that these voters who voted these people in really understood what they were doing um, at the time. And so that so it's this cohort of fascist Republicans that is really um driving this like you you know it's just the enforcement of of hierarchy and exploitation and um income inequality not providing any of the we're providing for the public services and healthcare and education that we need so yeah i would agree with you uh, you mentioned uh, uh, a, a public opinion poll uh, there's one specifically uh can you talk about that just a little more in detail? Do you, do you remember uh, where that was uh, from? Yeah, that was from a group called Searchlight Research, um, and it came out in February of this year. Um, and they found, you know, I've been I've been quoting it enough so that I can't quite remember which number is which, but I know that um, something like seventy five percent of Montanans believe that the right to privacy guaranteed in the Constitution and including abortion should be maintained. Um, like a good 28% of Montanans think abortion should only be legal in case in extreme situations, um, which I think is why it's important for those of us who maybe have a, a broader understanding of abortion and understand that it's not really like the state's place to police when or why you need an abortion. Uh, I think that's part of why it's really important to continue to destigmatize and continue to talk to your friends and family members who are like, you know, maybe in that camp, because like the more people that we can kind of chip away at that group, I, I, because I think it's really just a matter of understanding that like um, exceptions 
that's that's I don't want to get too much into the nitty gritty of abortion policy and stuff like that. But exceptions um, is a it's a it's an area that we need to kind of be working on public opinion, basically. But anyway, so the point is, is that Montanans are in favor of a woman's right to choose what happens with her body because um, because Montanans are a live and let live kind of kind of people, you know, like we were uh that's i feel like that's just part of the culture and the vibe and i appreciate that about us and and that's reflected in this polling uh the other thing that it uh, that it showed is that a majority of montanans really like our constitution and they don't want to see any constitutional amendments um whatsoever and i'm kind of drawing a blank on the rest of the polling data but if you have anything that you remember? Um, I don't. I, I was going to ask you about the constitutional amendments. There was, um, you know, at the beginning of the session, there was potential of 55, <laughs> um, <clears throat> which has yep. been narrowed down significantly, but there's still a bunch there. Um, and that's, uh, so, uh, so you, your feeling, your feeling is that this petition to ask Governor Gianforte to veto uh, much of these terrible bills uh, has lots of uh, majority public support. Absolutely, yeah, and that was our that was our intention in how we crafted it is that it would because a lot of you know it's it covers a lot of different issue areas, but the thing that all those different issue areas have in common is that um, they are things that the majority of Montanans are in agreement about. Yeah. And, and that was, that's really important to, to us and to DSA. I mean, is that we, we organize for the working class. And so if we, you know, like we, there's, we're not going to be working on something unless it really matters uh, to everyday working people. And um, yeah. Yeah. Well, as, as you mentioned, uh, Governor Gianforte is, highly unlikely to veto any of these bills. Um, in fact, he's he's very enthusiastically supporting many of them. Um, so what so where does this go? I mean what what is what, what is the next step after uh, presenting him all these signatures? Um, I think the next step is that we continue to organize each other and um, and continue to pursue the avenues that make sense to us uh, or that, that and that are possible um, to to make the voices of the majority of Montanans heard. So I think that there's, you know, there's things that we can do, like working on a, on a ballot initiative. I think ballot initiatives are really awesome because um, that is direct democracy. Like <laughs> It's just every you know, it's just about numbers. And, and when you're really trying to focus on what the majority of, of everyday people want and need, that's a really motivating thing. And, uh, and yeah, I think that there's a, there's generally in politics, a lack of what I think of as real organizing, um, which is where you're teaching everyday people, whether that's workers in their workplace or um, voters in their communities or their precincts, like when you when you can teach people how to um, how to work collectively to uh, to to build power and to demand basically the the 
the policy, the economy, the society that they deserve. I think that that's really the only thing that we can do, regardless of of what happens in the next couple of weeks um, at the Capitol. Yeah. Well, if someone wanted to sign this petition, how can they do that? They can go to montanapeoplesveto.org. So that's montanapeoplesveto.org. And, uh, and, that, the full and that's Montana spelled out, right? Montana spelled out. Yep. And um, there's the full petition. There's also a PDF version and you can sign up there and that's uh, that's where they can access it. Great. And and there, there's a deadline to this, right? Uh, there is a deadline. Yep. April 30th is the last day to submit signatures. And then we're going to be delivering the uh, petition to the governor on May 1st. Ah, all right. Well, nope. he's he's forewarned now. If he listens to the show, he he will be expecting that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure this is uh, one of his top. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Every uh, he's just waiting every Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, any any last words on the Montana People's Veto Petition? Um. Uh, I guess the thing I just want to point out is something that I learned actually. Um from a DSA training recently where they, uh, the DSA members in New York um, or helped organize to win uh, debt relief for taxi drivers, which was like a huge deal. And one of the things that the organizers from that campaign said is that uh, capitalists or capital will abandon you, but socialists won't. Um, and that's part of like the importance of, you know, doing work like this and uh, like I was talking about like real real organizing really teaching people about collective action um and why I think DSA is so awesome and and even though and and it's like starkly obvious in this scenario you know the governors abandon you all, all these fascist legislators have abandoned you they're not delivering for you but like here we are we're DSA we're socialists we know that's kind of like Oh, if you were in Montana, but like we're here doing what really matters to to you, basically. And so I just wanted to plug that. All right. Well, thank you very much. That's Sandy Birch from Western Montana Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. What's next in the news, Mark? Um. Well, we look at some of the impacts of the huge national security blob leak of classified documents, especially as it pertains to the portrayal of the war in Ukraine by our U.S. war masters. Posted on April 20th on the blog Naked Capitalism, Media Benjamin writes, quote, The U.S. corporate media's first response to the leaking of secret documents about the war in Ukraine was to throw some mud in the water, declare nothing to see here, and cover it as a de depoliticized crime story about a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman who published secret documents to impress his friends. President Biden dismissed the leaks as revealing nothing of great consequence. What these documents reveal, however, is that the war is going worse for Ukraine than our political leaders have admitted to us, while going badly for Russia too, so that neither side is likely to break the stalemate this year, and this will lead to a 
protracted war beyond 2023, as one of the documents says. The publications of these assessments, if they're, I mean, it's, I think they're real documents. I think they're real, whether they're right or not, that's another uh, question. But the publication of these assessments should lead to renewed calls for our government to level with the public about what it realistically hopes to achieve by prolonging the bloodshed and why it continues to reject the resumption of the promising peace negotiations it blocked in April of 2022. We believe that blocking those talks was a dreadful mistake in which the Biden administration capitulated to the warmongering since disgraced UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and that current US policy is compounding that mistake at the cost of tens of thousands more Ukrainian lives and the destruction of even more of their country. Well, mm. that's war, right? When you when you decide that's what you're going to pursue, that's what happens. And right. the question is why we decided we were going to pursue it anyway. Exactly. I mean, yep. that's my question. Yep. Um, I don't know what else to say. So. Yep. Well, that's that's enough. Um, and and what's more and possibly far more disturbing is what intrepid journalist Seymour Hirsch wrote. Uh, on his Substack blog on April 13th. Quote, Zelensky's half-hearted response to being confronted by massive corruption by him and his generals, which is a whole story in and of itself, by the way, um, and, right. the White, and the White House's lack of concern was seen, um, an intelligence officer added, as another sign of a lack of leadership that is leading to a total breakdown of trust between the White House and some elements of the intelligence community. Another divisive issue, uh, I, which is uh, uh, Seymour Hersh speaking, I have been repeatedly told in my recent reporting is the strident ideology and lack of political skills shown by Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. The president and his two main foreign policy advisors, quote, live in different worlds, unquote, than the experienced diplomats and military and intelligence officers assigned to the White House. Uh, this is a quote, they have no experience, judgment, and moral integrity. They just tell lies, make up stories. Diplomatic deniability is something else, the intelligent of official said, that has to be done, end quote. A prominent retired American diplomat who strenuously opposes Biden's foreign policy towards China and Russia depicted Blinken as little more than a, quote, jumped up congressional staffer, end quote, and Sullivan as a, quote, a political campaign manager, end quote, who suddenly find themselves front and center in the world of high power di diplomacy with no empathy for the opposition. They're decent polls, he said, uh, politicals, but now we have the political and energy world all upside down. China and India are now selling refined gasoline to the Western world. It's just business, end quote. Quote, there's a total breakdown between the White House leadership and the intelligence community, end quote, the intelligence official said. The rift dates back to the fall when, as I, Seymour Hirsch, reported in early February, Biden ordered the covert destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic Sea. This uh, intelligence analyst said, quote, destroying the Nord Stream pipelines was never discussed or even known in advance by the community. 
and there is no strategy for ending the war. The U.S. spent two years planning for the Normandy invasion in World War II. What are we going to do if China decides to invade Taiwan? End quote. The official added that the National Intelligence Council has yet to order a national intelligence estimate, the NIE, on defending Taiwan from China, which would provide national security and political guidance in case such does happen. There's no reason yet, despite repeated American political provocation from both Democrats and Republicans, the official said, to suspect that China has any intention of invading Taiwan. It has lost billions building its wildly ambitious Belt and Road Initiative aimed at linking East Asia to Europe and investing, perhaps foolishly, in seaports around the world. The official told me, the point is, there is no working NIE process anymore, end quote. Um, he said, CIA chief William Burns is not the problem. The problem is Biden and his principal lieutenants, Blinken and Sullivan, and their court of worshipers, who see those who criticize Zelensky as being pro-Putin. Um, we are against evil. Ukraine will fight till the last military shell is gone and still fight, end quote. And here's Biden who is telling America that we're going to fight as long as it takes, end quote. The official cited the little-known and rarely discussed deployment authorized by Biden of two brigades with thousands of America's best Army combat units to the region. A brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division has been intensively training and exercising from inside its base, in, from its base inside Poland, within a few miles of the Ukrainian border. It was reinforced late last year by a brigade from the 101st Airborne Division that was deployed in Romania. The actual manpower of the two brigades when administrative and support units with the trucks and drivers who haul the constant stream of arms and military equipment flowing by sea to keep the units combat ready <clears throat> could total more than 20,000 uh, people. The intelligent offic intelligence officials told me that, quote, there is no evidence that any senior official in the White House really knows what's going on in the 82nd and 101st. Are they there as a part of a NATO exercise or to serve with NATO combat units if the West decides to engage Russian units inside Ukraine? Are they there to train or to be a trigger? The rules of engagement say they can't attack Russians unless our boys are getting attacked, end quote. The official added, but the juniors are running the show here. There's no national security council coordination, and the U.S. Army is getting ready to go to war. There's no idea whether the White House knows what's going on. Has the president gone to the American people with an informative broadcast about what is going on? The only briefings the press and the public get today are from the White House spokespeople. This is not just bad leadership. There is none. Zero. End quote. It's worse than we think. What do you say, Linda? Does it sound like the Punic Wars all over again? <laughs> <laughs> something like, something like, yes, exactly. I just, uh, I just keep thinking we never, or our leadership never sees a war it doesn't like. Right. And yeah. um, and it makes money for some people, and mm -hmm. boy, those people are big into the uh, into the ears of our politicians i just yeah it, i know just, it is it just bothers it boggles the mind how much money already is being made by 
I'm sure, by defense contractors and so on in this country. And we're not. And and didn't the didn't the Congress just say before we go to war, you have to ask for the Congress to approve it? Uh, there, we, have to, we have to have a, that's, a major that's been discussion, an for right? Long yeah. time. Well, there's a bill. There's a bill now in that's Congress, it. but it hasn't. Pa- it maybe passed the House, but it won't pass the Senate pass the because Senate. of politics, right? Right, right. Um, it, I don't know. It just. I'm speechless, and I hardly yeah. am, as you know. Yeah, I. I what concerns me? Uh, well, a couple of things um, is that this has been this has been at a slow boil for decades. <laughs> you know, ever since um, Glasnost and you know the uh, realigning of um, the satellite states of. Ukraine has been on the hot seat and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's had a, a popular, a population that's diverse. It is, it's a population with a huge chip on its shoulder because terrible things have happened there for generations and everybody's mad at everybody. And it's not unlike Yugoslavia where you you could, mm-hmm. you could, uh, you know, change the players and, and, you know, put take out your highlighter and change the labels of everything but nothing fundamentally had changed and we uh we gotten involved in the <clears throat> in the in the war there in kosovo and it worked out i guess but it was avoidable and uh, i as it, it disturbs me that we couldn't see these flashpoints as part of a whole and that what Putin did was inevitable, I think, because he's a he's a punk and he doesn't like being, um, you know, manipulated. Then he'll do crazy things out of pride and out of uh, a, a zest and zeal for, you know, absolute control. And people should have figured that out. The guy's been around a long time. Mm-hmm. Another feature of this is that. Um, I, I I went to a steampunk convention with uh, one of my um, offspring, and there was a guy there who was a marine pilot that did things very very similar to what I would have done, you know, if I was in a war zone as a navy pilot. He was in the same airplane, and he said, you know, you can look at the wars and they're cyclic because it's like they're trying to get rid of ordnance which has a shelf life. <laughs> right. Bombs exactly. Bombs and rockets become unstable. It was, it was an un, unstable, um, uh, you know, piece of ordnance that was that uh, caused the fire on the forest all. You know this, this you know, you got to use the stuff up. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like a block of Limburger in the refrigerator. You know, can't keep it forever. <laughs> but you know these these. These incursions and excursions are tragic and stupid and they harm people's lives irreparably. And it's just, it's just tilling the soil and putting the seeds back in the ground to come back up again. You know, I have spent time in Bosnia. I've seen what a mess it is. And it's just continuation of the same thing. War really doesn't um, give any benefit to people whatsoever. Um, 
in general, right? It doesn't solve any problems. It just lays more seed for future violence. I agree. And, and, um, and I, I would say this, I think that, um, you know, uh, 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 Putin is an authoritarian, right? Um, uh, however, it wasn't only him, it was also liberal critics in Russia who said that uh, uh, it is a bright red line for uh, Ukraine to be put into NATO. And mm-hmm. the United States has been pushing, 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 pushing that absolutely for for uh, for many, many years. And then, you get a Ukrainian government that is uh, has, you know, for eight or nine years before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, which I don't agree with, by the way. Um, but um, it's under more understandable when um, when the, when the uh, Ukrainian military was shelling its own citizens in mm-hmm. Donbass for eight or nine years, making mm-hmm. making them miserable. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this is not coming out of nowhere. Right. Um, And and the you know, what is really uh, kind of mind boggling to me. And apparently I'm kind of reassured there's other people in the national security establishment that finds this boggling as well, is what the hell are we doing in Ukraine? That there, there is no there's no reason for Ukraine to be in NATO. In fact, what should have happened was that Russia should have been incorporated into a mutual defense pact with Europe. And Absolutely. There's, mm-hmm. there's dictatorships that are, or, or authoritarian regimes that are part of NATO. And sure. because people will say, mm-hmm. well, Russia is an authoritarian. Well, what about Turkey? Right. What yeah. about, right. Uh, what, right. what about some of these other countries too? Right. right. And, and uh, right now too, Germany is making it uh, illegal to publicly uh, be contrary to the being pro-war in Ukraine. Right. And, and it and it took there was a huge demonstration in Berlin a few weeks ago where people demonstrate and this in Germany has every interest in, in stopping the war as well. The German people do. But right. The, right. Uh, and, and it took uh, what's his name? The. Um, uh, no one could speak critically of the German government's policy except an American who was speaking remotely to the to the entire crowd. He was the only one because he's not a German citizen. He wasn't in Germany. Mm-hmm. He could criticize directly. Everybody else had to shut. So what are we defending here? Where? How is that democracy? That there's, uh, you know, yeah. I know. Well, and the and the Ukrainians who didn't think it was a good idea to join NATO were thinking of their own interests. And well, they must because they don't want what's happening now in Ukraine to happen, you know, to them. Well, John Mearsheimer, who's a very influential political scientist, has been talking, speaking on and on and on about he fears that... um, and he's been he's been giving speeches all over the world lately. Uh, he fears that uh, nuclear war could happen mm-hmm. in two ways. One is that if uh, U.S. military is in the way and they get fired on, and two is if Russia is losing the war. That's he yeah. Said, he said that take your pick, you know. Sure. 
Um, and, uh, and, and he was not, he was not at all, uh, optimistic. Let's put it that way. Um, that, yeah, I, well, that, that, I... and, and he's, and he places, I mean, he does, he's not, he's not a Putin lover, but he places the blame squarely on the United States. There's no question in his yeah. mind. And he's, uh, he's a smart guy and he's been talking to true, a lot of people. True. And he said, this was a provoked war. Which it certainly mm-hmm. was, and by the U.S. and uh, for what end we don't know. And now we get this report from uh, Seymour Hirsch is that there's amateurs running this war mm-hmm. on the U.S. side. I'm 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 more afraid now than I've been during this entire war. If we're just yeah. depend on something which we would go to war over if it happened in our country. Right. Right. I mean, uh, exactly. If somebody came to our country or if somebody in our country was urged. It's like, it's like yeah, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Thank you. I just exactly. want, that's a perfect I mean, what, parallel. Exactly. So what happens if Russia puts down an alliance with, I mean, engages in an alliance with Cuba now, right? I mean, we still can't let Cuba go. We still got sanctions there and all of that kind of thing. Right. Um, or what if the Russians came to Canada or whatever? What would we do? Right. Well, that's what the Russians are doing mm-hmm. now that NATO is making all over Ukraine and Finland's in now. And the Finns are led by quite a guy now. Right. Um, oh, and, no, and I, didn't know. I just think, yeah. you know, we're, we're all around them. And why wouldn't they feel uncomfortable? And yet, if you ever say that kind of thing, here's my other real concern about Americans and our discourse about the Ukrainians, about the situation in Ukraine, is if you ever try to ask a question about it, you're suddenly uh, uh, a Putin lover, right? right? Mm-hmm. And right. that's that old thing from Chris Hedges. There is no ambiguity once a war starts or right. once something comes there, it's right. lost right after the truth, right? As is our theme here, we promote the cause of strong democratic unions. Beside the third wave workers of Missoula at Black Coffee Roasters, there are efforts to do more union organizing in Western Montana, among other service industry and other workers as well. That's right, Jim. There are six more or actually eight more worksite organizing drives happening here in Missoula this month at various stages uh, with support from the Western Montana Workers Alliance. Anyone who works in Western Montana and who is interested in organizing or knows someone who does you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at westernmtwa at gmail.com. That is W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com or by leaving a message at 406 924-3830. That's 406-924-3830. Well, thanks, Linda and Jim, for a great show, as usual. 
And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our new website at www.1015kfgm.org, and you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thank you. Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%.